You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. We all live in a society that's alien to the Christian. It might not have been alien to us before we met Christ, but once we become Christians, things begin to clash in the culture with the culture of heaven, which is now taking up residence inside us. And over the holidays, I've been reading a very challenging book uh, written by John Lennox, who's a professor of mathematics and uh, philosophy of science in Oxford. And uh, it's a book, really an exposition of the life of Daniel. And he brings into it a lot of history and a lot of theology and just a lot of his life and studies. And uh, it's been a real challenge to me as I look at the life of Daniel and uh, see how he carried out his, uh, just walked his life in the middle of a pagan society, which is very much alien to the way he was brought up and the way that he understood. And uh, the book that I've been reading is called Against the Flow. It's a great title. We as Christians uh, really are like salmon. We're going up against the current. And um, we are very much against the flow. And and the subtitle is The Inspiration of Daniel in an Age of Relativism. And uh, I would recommend that as a a really good read. It's a long read. It's nearly 400 pages. But um, I'm not finished yet, but I'm getting there. Been inspired. And uh, I trust that you will uh, also be secondarily inspired by what I have learned through his writings and also the Bible itself. Daniel was immersed in a pagan culture. It hadn't always been like that. He had been in a a culture back in Jerusalem where there had been a lot of uh, Yahweh worship, but there also had been other gods as well. Then he was taken to this, forcibly, to this culture called Babylonia, where he was totally immersed in a pagan society. And so much so that they even changed his name from Daniel to Belteshazzar. All his friends had their names changed. I don't think they liked Daniel's name. Does anybody know what Daniel's name means? It means the Lord is my judge. So no doubt the Babylonians didn't like the Hebrew names because they preached at them every time they said the name. And so they give them names like Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've been to Sunday school, you'll know those names. Um, But Daniel's a wonderful role model for all of us as he demonstrates how it's possible to live in a society. Daniel used everything that was available to him. Things like decency. God-inspired decency. Not groveling decency. Natural gifting. The providence of God and the supernatural. He used all those things very effectively to minister in Babylonia. And he was so effective that it seems from what we can read in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar himself was converted. The emperor himself was converted through a Hebrew boy become man in Babylonia. Isn't that amazing? That should give us hope here in this society that through our witness, many people, high and low, can come to know Jesus if we remain faithful to him. So I want to read from the scriptures, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through to 21. It's a long reading, but it's an exciting story. It's not boring. Uh, So let's follow through on this reading. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God, note the small g, in Babylonia, and put it in the treasure house of his God. 
Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to, be, to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Mishah. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servant for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine when they, ha uh, they had to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. Now, we have mentioned Daniel, but you may not know that there was another very famous contemporary of Daniel, and his name was Jeremiah. They lived at the same time. They were involved, caught up in the same events. There was an overlap in their life. Jeremiah was probably before Daniel in age, but um, there was a big overlap. And uh, it's very important that we bring that, uh, Jeremiah in here because I believe that Jeremiah had a huge influence on Daniel. So here we can see even uh, some of the earliest influences of the scriptures that we now have being played out in the lives and in the history of a person and of a nation. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. Daniel writes, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem should last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. 
So we can see here that Jeremiah's words were taken to be prophecy from the Lord, so much so that Daniel fasted and prayed and pled with the Lord because of the word that was given. It must have been hard for Daniel to hear that word, that here was a young man exiled by an evil regime, and he had no real hope of being repatriated to his homeland again. Say he was 12, say he was 18 when he was kidnapped, 70 years, 88. He probably thought he'd never be back again, so he had to come to terms with that. Now, we're bringing in the ministry of Jeremiah here, and I had been led to believe through just some things I'd heard and read that Jeremiah's ministry was a failure, a complete failure. Has anybody ever heard that? Jeremiah's ministry was a failure because Israel didn't listen. He went out and preached. He preached his heart out. He wept. He's known as the weeping prophet. But at the end of it all, Israel was still, or Judah was still exiled. But after reading this, I realized that Jeremiah's ministry was not a failure. It was actually a wonderful success because it had the effect of turning uh, Daniel's life around and the life of Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah as well. And um, probably many, many others of the exiles, you know, the priests and the Levites and the craftsmen and those intellectual people who were taken away to Babylon, Jeremiah had a big influence on them. And then he also wrote two books of the Bible. He influenced Daniel. Daniel wrote a book of the Bible. And so that word of the Lord now is still going on, powerfully influencing lives. So I've revised my view of the life of Jeremiah. And I want to say to some people here tonight who may be thinking that their ministry up to this point has been a bit of a failure. You hear these voices in your mind, and I've already heard one person come to me this morning and say, I was hearing in my mind that I am a failure. My ministry is a failure. But having looked at Jeremiah, I realized, no, it's not. And um, I want you to take courage that if the Lord has appointed you to a ministry and you have obeyed him, it is he who is responsible for the outcome, not you. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says, Paul says this by the power of the Holy Spirit regarding sowing the gospel. He said, I, sowed, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God gave the increase. So don't be discouraged if you're, you perceive your ministry to be a failure. Take that to the Lord and trust him for the outcome of your ministry. Okay, the outcomes, whether they're souls saved, people healed, um, people encouraged, built up in their faith, the outcome is with the Lord. Just obey him and he will do the rest. So we're bringing Jeremiah into the picture because I believe that Jeremiah was a really big influence in the life of Daniel. And uh, perhaps you also, uh, as you live for the Lord, will be like a Jeremiah to some Daniel, uh, influencing him, encouraging him through his young years, writing stuff, saying stuff that will really get him to, through it. As I said before, Nebuchadnezzar, this um, evil emperor, uh, just went around conquering up, lapping up little nations all around, and no one could stand in his way, not even Judah. But you must know that God ordained that. In the very first uh, few verses of Daniel, it says, God give Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The sovereign Lord did that. And uh, all of that happened on a date in history, 597 BC. 
A lot of people say the Bible is just a fairy tale. Actually, it's a history book as well. It's a factual history book, which is backed up by um, historical documents such as the Babylonian Chronicle. It's a stone which recounts the sacking of Jerusalem and the dates given there, although it won't say BC, it gives a date which we can trace back to that very year, 597 BC. So it is a factual story that we're reading here in Daniel, the life of a young man and four young men actually, who trusted God in the middle of an exile. So Daniel was very much aware of Jeremiah's writings, as I said, and the writing that um, he quotes from in Daniel 9, which we just read, actually doesn't appear in our Bibles. It was another one of Jeremiah's books that didn't get into the Bible. But nevertheless, Daniel treated it as though it came from the Lord. However, we do know that Daniel and his contemporaries would be aware of the book of Jeremiah that we now have. And we know this from Jeremiah chapter 29. Most of us who love Old Testament promises will know Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, And it starts off, for I know the plans I have for you. But most of us will not know the context of that promise. That that promise is not given in a vacuum. It's not given without conditions. But it's given in a place of exile. Not even a refugee situation where people fled. It was a, a place of slavery, a new and alien culture. And into that was given this wonderful promise. I want to read this promise so as you can get the... I want to read the context and the promise. So I'll read from Jeremiah 29, verses 1, following. So this is what it says. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. Listen to this list. The priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, down verse 4. He says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he said. It may strike you as rather normal and ordinary. Verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Verse 7. Also seek the, the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And if you have your ears open and you're thinking about what does that sound like? You may also be thinking, that sounds a bit like the Garden of Eden. It almost sounds similar. There are a few overlaps there. So then we go down to verse 11, where the uh, promise comes in. I'll read in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord. 
and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That's a, a wonderful context and promise for Daniel and his fellow exiles. So, like Daniel, we as Christians have um, a new culture deep inside of us. And it's the culture of heaven, the very culture of heaven and the very culture of Christ himself. It has been sown in our hearts. And so when we wake up to the fact that we're born again by the Holy Spirit, things begin to clash, or at least they should begin to clash with the culture in which we are embedded here. It now begins to seem like an alien culture. And the process of discovering how alien it is is a lifelong journey. I think we never come to the end of discovering how alien and contrary to the culture of heaven the, the prevailing culture is today in our society. It's not to say the culture of the West is totally dark. It's not that. But there are things deep inside it which are not from the... They don't have their origin in heaven. They have their origin in the other place. Um, the culture of hell. And there will be a tension in our lives. And perhaps even an increasing tension. Do you feel that tension in your life? Between what you know in your heart deep down and what you see in the city around. If you feel that tension, that's a good thing. And if you feel it increasingly, that's even a good thing too. Because I believe there are uh, deepening tensions there. On the other hand, if you feel that that tension between you and the the prevailing uh, godless culture is diminishing and you feel that you're beginning to liaise with it and absorb it and that that's a worry to me that would be um, I believe a sign that we're departing from the culture of Christ there see there are things in the culture of the world that are eternally irreconcilable to God not people there's people are reconcilable to God but actions mindsets and uh, habits which will, cannot ever be reconciled. There are things that cannot be redeemed, but not people. So even though Jerusalem and Judah were being punished for, for the sin that had been committed over the years, hundreds of years of sin by the kings and the people, not everybody in Jerusalem was godless. There was what we call a remnant of people and perhaps even a sizable remnant of people in Judah who didn't bow the knee to Baal and to Marduk and to Nushku and um, uh, all these other gods, um, Molech and Baal and so many of them. They kept faithful to God. And I believe Daniel and possibly Daniel's family were among those who kept faithful to God. But because of the sin of the kings, particularly Manasseh, God decided to exile Judah. And so we see that the righteous suffered with the unrighteous in this case. And sadly that happens. So one of the huge fundamental differences between the culture of the Jews, the real Jews, and the culture of Babylon was that Babylon had 2,100 gods. Can you imagine that? Well, Hinduism has millions of gods, I'm told. But the Babylonians had 2,100. They had a pantheon. And all of those ancient cultures like the Assyrians, the Sumerians, 
the Greeks, the Romans, they all had pantheons. The Roman gods included Jupiter and uh, Mercury, I believe. And the Greeks had Zeus, and they had Athena, and they had Diana, and all these kinds of gods. But the Babylonians had a whole list of gods as well. Names like Asher or Enlil, who they believed was the god of the air, the head of the Assyrian pantheon. Perhaps that might even equate to Satan himself, because the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. Then there's Anu or An, Enki, Erish Kigal, who was the goddess of the underworld, Ishtar, you may be familiar with the name Ishtar, which, from which we get the name Esther. Um, she was a goddess of fertility, love, war, and the goddess of the lion. Then there was Marduk, the patron deity of Babylon, and there was Nabu, god of wisdom and writing. That's just a few. There's still 2,080 um, something gods left. Whereas the Jews had only one god, and his name was Yahweh. Jehovah. That was a striking difference. And the laws of the Babylonians and their customs and everything else reflected this multiplicity of gods that they tried to um, appease and tried to keep happy. Imagine trying to keep happy all those gods. It's, it's not, well, even if they were real entities, it would be impossible. But Daniel had one god. And one of the beautiful things about the story of Daniel is, if you read it, it's about how God... Uh, trumps all the other gods. In everything that happens, God, Jehovah, comes out tops. That's one of Daniel's goals in writing. And uh, we'll, sh we'll have a look at some of those incidences. Um, for instance, the god Ishtar or Inanna, uh, the fertility god, her rituals and, and her worship was totally without boundaries. It was totally sexualized. And God in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, completely outlaws such activity. There was a very big contrast between the two cultures. And we find today that the culture of heaven contrasts greatly with the culture, the prevailing culture, the sexual, um, sexually charged culture of the West today, where anything goes. Our culture abhors that. That is um, repugnant to the culture of heaven. And, much, and um, let's look at one incidence where God trumps the gods of the Babylonians. And um, we see that when the astrologers and the magicians were asked to interpret, and actually not only interpret, but they were asked to tell Nebuchadnezzar back the dream that he had. He knew what, he, what dream he had, but he didn't want to tell them. He wanted to make it really, really sure that he was going to get the right interpretation. So the magicians said... What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. So that was the observation of the magicians. The gods don't live among men. But what does Daniel teach? Well, in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were thrown into the fire, um, Nebuchadnezzar suddenly gets alarmed, and he says, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? And the servants replied, certainly, O king. And the king said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. God was walking amongst his people in trouble, in the midst of trouble, and he was saving them. He dwelt amongst people. So there's a contrast between one of the gods, or the, all of the gods of Babylon, and Jehovah. Then for, take, for instance, um, uh, 
that the, the gods of the Babylonians were reputed to be at war with each other and that they were having children with each other and they vied for superiority. No one can vie against Jehovah and win. No one. See what Satan, see what happened to him when he tried. He was cast out of heaven. Chapter 347 says, and this is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar after he's confronted with this godly young man. Nebuchadnezzar says, surely your God is the God of gods. I think that could be the central verse of Daniel. Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. What a testimony to the superiority, the absolute superiority of Jehovah. We now know him as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Absolutely superior over all gods. Then we have Ishtar. She was the lion goddess. Look at the story of Daniel. What does the story of Daniel say about the lions? Who's in control of the lions? Jehovah. Wonderful. Daniel in the lion's den. Nushka, the fire god. Who is superior over the fire god? Jehovah. Wonderful, isn't it? So what relevance has this got for us today? Well, we do not live in such an obviously pagan society. We don't go down into Eltham and find uh, gods all over the place, but if you go into Warrandite, you might find one on this side of the bridge. We do not live in such an obviously pagan society, but fundamentally, it is a pagan society. People have left off the uh, Judeo-Christian values and are now seeking a multiplicity of values. People have their own eclectic faith. Well, I'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I'll make up my own faith, and I'll be fine. No, you won't. You won't be fine. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, but we still see um, our people in this nation becoming more and more pagan. One of the fastest growing religions in Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom is paganism. It's witchcraft. Witch covens are growing. And uh, people are worshipping Mother Earth, and otherwise known as Gaia, the goddess of the earth. And then, too, there, are, there is the pantheon of non-religious gods, such as sport, money, celebrity worship, sex, fame, and any number of obsessions that we can bring into our lives at this time. And I see a God emerging very, very strongly in some of our Western societies, and it's the God of patriotism. Are, are you known as a patriot? It's fine to an extent, but what's happening is extreme patriotism where your nation becomes the supreme thing. You can hear some of the politicians, uh, especially in North America, uh, by their words, they say America is the supreme nation of the earth and their citizens are more important than any other citizen. Watch and listen for it. Someone has said that the religion of many North Americans is Americanism, not Christianity. Perhaps the religion of many Australians is not Christianity, but Australianism. Beware of the God of extreme patriotism. Uh, because it's a false god and will let you down. There's one god, his name is Jehovah, and we know him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Way back in Exodus, in the second book of the Bible, we have a testimony. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? That's the question. And the answer is given. Who is like, oh, question again. Who is like you in majest majestic and holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The answer is implied in the question. There is no one like God. 
So let's have a look at Jeremiah's advice to Daniel. And not only to that Daniel, but to us modern Daniels who live here and Daniels who are sitting here tonight. Chapter 29, verse 5 of Jeremiah. First advice was build houses and settle down. Now, I was brought up in a very, very godly home through the 60s and 70s and 80s. It was during the Cold War and during the Suez crisis, Middle East problems, where the price of oil went way through the roof and um, petrol went from a few pence a gallon to over a pound a gallon. And um, it was a tremendous time of uncertainty. And my father was a Middle East watcher. He's gone on to glory now, but he was a Middle East watcher. And uh, he would get, uh, on the one hand, nervous, and yet, on the other hand, hopeful that the Lord would come back. He used to say of us four children, little tiny ones, he said, I hope the Lord comes back before they get older. The Lord didn't come back. My dad's theology led him not to invest in a house. It led him not to put his resources, his human resources, into anything uh, of this world much, apart from what he drove and what he ate, uh, what he clothed himself with in us. And um, when the church was going to build a new building, he said, no, we shouldn't build a building because we need to put all that money into missions. And that was his approach. But praise the Lord, he began to see that we all need a roof over our heads. And so when the opportunity did finally come after persuasion, he bought a house, and that has been a wonderful blessing to my mother and to us earlier on. And then also, when the vote went against him for building a church, he threw his weight in behind the new church. But what I'm saying is, in Daniel's day, they weren't given the option of trying to escape or hanging around waiting for an escape. No, they were told, you settle here, you build a house, and settle down. And you know, if you are feeling like you want to build a house or buy a house, and you have the resources, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Unless you want to get yourself into such a huge, opulent, debt-ridden thing that you're going to burden yourself down for the rest of your life, that might not be a good idea. But Daniel was saying, basically, settle down in this alien country. You're not going anywhere right now. So just get used to it. And begin to do what you need to do to survive here. And the second thing Daniel said to the exiles were, was, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Now, how many of you here have a little veggie patch somewhere in the garden? Yeah, I see, see a few hands going up. Well, this year I also got the veggie patch going, and uh, it's going pretty well, um, thanks to the more mild summer weather. But, you know, basically our little veggie patches would never make us survive. It's just a hobby, right? But basically, uh, Jeremiah was saying to the exiles, you know, do, do what you can to provide for yourself. Don't expect deliverance from somebody else, or on high, or down here. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to get out there and provide for yourself. It could have been in the form of um, get a job, plant your garden, make your own food. You know, there is no excuse for us to hang around waiting for others to provide for us in this world. If God uses others to provide for us, 
that's really good. But if it comes after sitting with your bowl and begging and being lazy, there's no mandate in Scripture for that. It says in, in Ephesians, I believe, if a man will not work, don't let him eat. And the advice from Jeremiah was that to build your house, plant your garden. And then he says, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And this is the second little um, advice that looks a little, bit, a little bit like the Garden of Eden and the command to Adam. So it's reiterated here again. Jeremiah was saying, you know, live out normal human life while you're here in this um, culture. God mandated normal human life. If we look at our culture today to find normalcy, we're going to find perversion. Because marriage is being perverted. Praise God, Australia hasn't gone down that road. And, and let's not um, say it's a done deed. Let's not say in our hearts it's all, all is lost because all is not lost. Let's pray that this country will hold to the real definition of marriage as found in the Word of God. And by the way, the country's definition is pretty biblical right now. And um, you know, we, were, we were joking this morning that Stuart was down in sea spray for his holidays, and down there he was arranging a marriage because uh, Jordan and Jade got engaged down there uh, over a week ago, which is really, really good and in compliance with this mandate from Jeremiah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and also it says, do not decrease in numbers. And uh, we have eight or nine babies coming along, I think, that we know about. So that is also a compliance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some, in some organizations, they have a compliance committee. So um, we're doing pretty well here tonight. And then we come to another... Um, well, I just should say in finishing about that, it's very encouraging to have families. You know, um, my mother, she got married very late in life. She got married when she was 36. She had me at 37, and she had three more after that. And then she told me one day she'd wanted six but ran out of time. And I asked her why. She said, well, if we lose one or two, a family becomes small very quickly. See, she was brought up in the era where almost every family lost a kid or two. Uh, my mother is the daughter of a Victorian. My grandmother was born in 1890, so we spaced the generations out a long way. Big families are good, so most of the time. can be a bit rowdy. Anyway, the last mandate here from Jeremiah, or second last, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Here is a very important little line. It is a command to seek the prosperity of a city which absolutely potentially ruined the lives of thousands of Jewish people. Many were killed. Thousands were uprooted and taken off to a foreign country and had their names changed, had their diet changed, had their language changed. They were forced to do all these things. It's a bit like what um, Stalin did in Russia. He took whole peoples in from one part of the Soviet Union and put them in another. They've done it in China as well. And it was very, very disruptive. How in the world was 
Daniel and his fellow exiles supposed to find within themselves the power to seek the prosperity of this horrible, horrible regime. How were they supposed to do it? Only one way, by the grace of God. And that's the same way in which we will find the power to seek the prosperity of an alien culture in which we live. When I was growing up in Northern Ireland, we, I grew up in the era of the Troubles. Um, the Troubles is code word for guerrilla warfare. And uh, the people that were aggrieved, um, they figured that they were oppressed. And surely there was some oppression going on. They decided that they would burn all the buses. They would blow up the bridges. They would do all this damage to the infrastructure. And then all of a sudden, one day, they realized, where's that 106 bus that I was supposed to catch to go to uh, school? Uh, we burned that last week. So it was really a, a very, very dumb thing to do to destroy your own society, even if it, perceived, if it was perceived to be oppressive or evil. Rather, God was saying, don't burn the buses. Pay your fare. Go on the buses. Do your work when you're there and help the city to prosper. Let us also help this city to prosper by our hard work and by one other thing. I believe uh, by prayer. Before I come to the prayer thing, we as believers may feel that we are aliens in this society. And uh, there may come times when we feel the best thing to do is pack up and go to the other side of the what, the black stump? Is that what they say? Uh, go bush and live out there because this culture is clashing with me so much. But, you know, I, I, what's happening in Holland and in, in the UK with the Muslim immigrants is that many of them are not liking the culture they're living in and so, to such an extent that they are not mixing in any way. And I don't blame them. What is normal in Holland? Well, when your grandfather is getting to about 78 and a little bit useless, maybe you can persuade him to go and euthanize himself. You know, take him off to the clinic and bye-bye. Belgium, things like that are happening. That's beginning to be normal there. And the Prime Minister of Holland said last week to all the immigrants, if you don't like it here, leave. So you can see that in, in, in Western Europe, there's this tension growing between the Muslim immigrants and the people who have been there for a while because their cultures are so alien to each other. If Nebuchadnezzar had given that opportunity to the Jewish exiles, I'm sure they'd be gone in the morning, wouldn't they? If you don't like it here, leave. They'd been gone. But that option wasn't given to them. Instead, God gave them the mandate to settle down, plant gardens, marry, have children, pray, seek the prosperity of the city. And I believe we're the same. A further thing that Prime Minister Mark Rutte said to the immigrants, he said, act normal or go away. Act normal or go away. So if the country of Australia says to us, act normal or go away, if our first question is, what's normal? And if they say, well, it is comply with the latest godless legislation um, or stuff like that, well, we, we would have to say, sorry, if you call that normal, we don't act like that then they might say, go away. But thank God we haven't got to that stage where we've been told to act like everybody else or go away. We say, we will act normal, but normal according to God's normal. 
So how do we seek the prosperity of our city? Well, some Christians have said there is no place for the believer in Christ in politics. If you believe that, please build a case from the scripture and come to me and give it to me because I want to see it. I haven't seen from the whole of scripture a strong case for a believer or any believer not to be involved in politics. Daniel and Joseph were in politics to the very hilt. Joseph had only one person senior to him. Daniel had only one person senior to him in the entire land. David was king of Israel. Um, Samuel was the judge. So many key people in the Old Testament were up to the hilt in politics. And they led the nations well. Is God calling one of you here tonight to be involved in politics at some level or other? I wonder. I got the feeling that between the two congregations there might even be one person that God is directing into some level of politics. Our mayor today in Nilumbik is a strong believer in Jesus Christ. And if he had believed that it wasn't the Christian's place to be involved in politics, we wouldn't have a Christian mayor today. We wouldn't have that wise man, and he is a wise man, at the helm, guiding our local politicians. So is God actually calling some of us to be involved? Well, if you have a vote, you're already involved. Use it well. Vote strategically. We were hearing from Rachel Carling Jenkins, who is a member of the Upper House in Victoria. She came to a meeting of the pastors here in our church down at the Bolt um, about four months ago, three months ago. And she told us about the uh, procedure that they're going through to um, fight abortion. Did you know that Victoria's abortion rules are the most horrendous in the world? They are diabolical. And she has this passion to see them removed. But what she intends to do, she intends to approach it in the way that William Wilberforce approached it, by bit by bit, piece by piece, year by year, until it becomes repugnant in the eyes of the society we live in. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? Uh, Rachel Carling Jenkins is a strong believer in the Lord, and she told us that there are enough believers in Victoria that if we use our votes correctly and wisely, we could actually hold the balance of power so that no further diabolical legislation could be passed in Victoria. And in fact, we could begin to reverse what has already been done. So think very, very carefully the next time the elections come around. Listen to people like Australian Christian Lobby, Family Voice Australia, when they say uh, this is a strategic way to vote. Anyway, moving on from politics, because really and truly, we cannot allow godless men and women to have a monopoly on the rule of power, can we? Let's ask ourselves what we can do to seek the peace and prosperity of our city. But Daniel gives us all one thing that we can surely do. Pretty sure none of, not all of us can be politicians, but all of us can pray. It says there in verse 7, Pray to the Lord for the city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What a wonderful thing to know. Basically here, Daniel was charging the believers almost with the prosperity of the city. If you pray, this city will prosper, and you will prosper too. If you, that implies that if you don't pray, things will not happen. Why did Jesus say, pray 
Therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he might send out laborers in this harvest field. Why did he say that? I believe he said it because if we pray, missionaries will go out. And on the other hand, I believe that if we don't pray, people that might otherwise have gone will not go because prayer is vitally important. In the Lord's Prayer, which, you know, Stuart, this morning when you finished off with the Lord's Prayer, I had it in mind that that's what we should do. So the Spirit was speaking to you clearly, I believe. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, um, lead us not into temptation. Why do we pray that? Well, so that we won't go into temptation. What if we don't pray? Perhaps we'll be more vulnerable to temptation. So prayer is so important for the prosperity of this city. And I want to make clear now that when I say prosperity, I mean shalom. I don't mean bags of gold and money and wealth and all that stuff. I mean the full shalom package. Peaceful streets. Worshipping people. People with a, a house. You know that house we were told to build? People with that kind of a thing. With a garden. And uh, good health care. All that kind of thing. That's shalom. That's real prosperity. Daniel was a man of prayer. Daily he prayed three times. All you oldies who went to Sunday school will know that song. He did pray three times every day. And doubtless he prayed for, for Babylon. You know, there are many prayer initiatives going around today in this country and uh, in churches. Um, you will find them on the internet. Um, there are 40 days of prayer for Islam. There was special prayer for Australia. And um, there's prayer for our church. We have prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Um, we hold it in the smallest room in the building because my observations make me conclude that we don't really get the prayer thing yet. And I long that we'll crowd that little yellow room out on Wednesday nights and we have to go over to the back. After the back, we have to come in here to pray and seek the Lord for what? For the prosperity of Melbourne, the true shalom of Melbourne. May the Lord grant it Wednesday night, 7.30, will be a prayer meeting here. The next Wednesday, 6.30, in that little room at the back. Please come and pray and seek the Lord. And uh, just getting back to um, the end of this talk here, I want to read in a, in a gospel sense Jeremiah 29, verses 11 following. For you who have not yet trusted Jesus, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. That's the gospel. When you think about it in the context of what Jesus Christ has done, some, um, let me see how many years, that, that was some... 570 years after Jeremiah wrote, or 590 years after Jeremiah wrote, Jesus came. And he wants to take us away from the captivity of sin and the alien culture in which we find ourselves. If you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
Trust him tonight before you leave this building for his glory and for your safety. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.